I want to start today's conversation by uh, stating first and foremost that uh, no one has been through what we're going through right now. Uh, and in conversations with my investors and, and board members, um, I think the number one piece of advice that has given me some comfort is anybody who says they know uh, what to do uh, is uh, lying because nobody really knows what to do right now. And we're, we're sort of seeing things evolve on a minute by minute basis. Um, that all being said, we do have some pretty strong points of view about what not to do. And I think Lynn uh, is not one uh, to be shy. If you don't know her, uh, uh, we, we look forward to you getting to know her on this conversation. Um, and we do have uh, some pretty strong assumptions about what you might do uh, if you're not sure what you should be doing or if you're not getting clear guidance from your leadership team or if you are on the leadership team and you're not sure what kind of clear guidance to give in the midst of a, a such uncertainty, uh, hopefully we can help uh, frame the, uh, some perspective on this topic. And so, Mike, I know as we are going to kick off here, we thought it might be worthwhile to do some uh, quick uh, surveys, just given that we've got such a strong uh, audience of uh, advancement professionals from literally around the world. Um, would now be the right time for that, Mike, or do you want to... Um, uh, hold on that for now. Yeah, let's do it. Um, I'm going to launch a poll here. So here, the first question is talking about the annual fund forecast. And, you know, in light of the events going on in the world, how have you lowered your annual fund goal for fiscal fiscal for this current fiscal year? You know, have you changed it yet? It may even be that you just don't know, but like if you're starting to reduce it, if you're greater than, you know, 40% reduction, um, we're just gonna keep this live for a few more seconds. Looks like we have more. Yeah, unscientific. Don't. There's no wrong answer here. Um, but what we do know is that in the midst of an unprecedented, uh, not only depth of a stock market crash, but the pace at which this crash has happened, uh, right as we are all staring down what would typically be our busiest time of the year uh, for an annual fund to really start pushing to final participation and revenue goals. Where are you at this point? All right, I'm gonna share those results. We have about a, over 200 people voted and so far, let me share those results. The vast majority have said that they haven't changed their goal. Um, I wish I had a follow-up question here and just wonder if you anticipate that or not. Uh, maybe yeah, Mike, I mean, feel into. free also, as we keep the conversation going, if there are other questions that come to mind, it's such a neat opportunity, and we'll make sure to share uh, the responses with everybody, even if it's relevant for your leadership team. I guess what I would say is every uh, company in the planet right now, for the most part, uh, is having to think about uh, reforecasting goals. My company, Lynn's company, uh, higher ed uh, enrollment teams, uh, you know, certainly anybody in the hospitality or restaurant space. And I guess um, I'm going to just go ahead and say, in light of how things have shifted so quickly, I'm not super surprised that the vast majority of, of uh, advancement shops haven't yet shifted goals. But I think it's hard to imagine a scenario where in the midst of such a historic decline, uh, so much anxiety that we really could possibly envision our June 30th 2020 goals being the same as they were uh, three months ago. And so Lynn, curious to get your overall reaction to that. Yeah, as a fellow business owner and a small business owner, I've had to completely reconfigure my business plan. And um, I think really naive of, of higher education and not 
outfits for us not to completely reconfigure. This is not a blip. This is not, um, this is going to fundamentally change the way nonprofits operate for the future. And, and to think that, okay, so once we get over quarantine, um, we'll just send out an annual fund mailing or, you know, we'll ramp back up our call center. Um, it's not going to, that's not going to be our reality. And so, yes, fundraising will bounce back eventually. It always does after a recession. Um, but I think we have to readjust goals. I think we have to readjust our expectations about around um, what we expect from our donor base and what we expect from our alumni as well. So now's the time. Um, now that we've set up our remote offices and we've stopped panicking, hopefully now's the time to be more realistic about our goals. Yeah, I think one way to think about it is just as a proxy, looking at what has happened in the stock market. The, the markets uh, are, are up significantly today. In a couple of hours, it could change, but they're, they're, they're down around 35% from their highs. And so while we can't uh, recommend a specific way to reforecast every individual annual fund, um, I do think you can start to do some scenario planning. What would happen if our annual fund number, let's say we had a million dollar goal, what, what would happen if it also were 35% down? Uh, so coming in at, let's call it 650,000 a year, or if your goal is 10 million, coming in at 6.5 million, um, and you can start to do some scenario planning around that and, and also start to ask uh, leadership, what happens if we start to uh, see results um, decline at that level? And it might be, you know what, we've got a cash cushion. Uh, we all realize that this year uh, goals are kind of out the window. We, we've just got to adapt as quickly as we can uh, and, and do our best. Uh, and then I think furthermore, what you can look at are the inputs into those overall goals, one being retention, uh, the second, second being reactivation of lapsed supporters, and the third being upgrades and downgrades uh, of those uh, uh, of last year's supporters. And trying to get a handle on where are we year-to-date retention uh, relative to where we need to end up for the year, uh, how are we doing on reactivating lapse supporters? And then what are we seeing from an upgrade and downgrade perspective? And I would think that um, in particular, and Lynn, I don't know if you have perspective from 0809, but I would imagine there are a lot of supporters who still want to support the institution, but they may need to reduce their scale uh, of support from a downgrade perspective. Absolutely. I think that we should be sensitive to um, people's anxiety over their liquidity right now. Um, just like in 2008, 2009, we had a certain industry get hit very hard, real estate, the banking industry. Right now in the United States, one in five U.S. households has a person who's unemployed because of COVID. Um, and so we need to understand that this affects airline pilots the same way it affects a bartender. Um, and this is widespread. So you may have people who desperately want to support their alma mater. Myself is, you know, I know you, Brent, support your alma maters as well, but I'm worried about liquidity and capacity. So I may give a faith gift, a, a, an investment gift, um, but it's not going to be anywhere near capacity right now because I want to hold on to my cash and I'm concerned about what's going to happen out um, in the world um, kind of beyond. Um, so in Austin, Texas, where I live, we're currently quarantined on lockdown. Um, so we've been asked to shelter in place and stay at home um, even more than other places in the country. So there's, I think there's 30 
um, places like that. But everybody has a different experience wherever they live. But the national experience and where the money is, is where people are worried about their liquidity um, and capacity. So I see a lot of downgrades. I also see a lot of opportunity for monthly gifts instead of one-time asks. Yeah. Yeah, I think the other thing we need to take in, into account is the, uh, the relative mix of demographics for a given institution and also even looking at um, industry and company exposure. Uh, for example, uh, I, I spoke with someone yesterday who has a hospitality school. Okay, uh, if, if you have a, a group of uh, graduates who are uh, coming out of hospitality programs, the kind of intervention that you're going to need to think about to help them in the coming months and years is going to be radically different than somebody who uh, uh, has exposure to the on-demand space. For example, uh, Walmart just announced massive plans to uh, add headcount. Instacart just announced that they're going to be hiring 300,000 people. My brother works for a company called Drizzly based in Boston, which is an on-demand alcohol provider. So you can basically uh, order alcohol on your phone and have it brought to you from a liquor store. They are seeing incredible growth in demand as, uh, uh, as people turn to delivery services. Uh, and so there is, um, I think it's important to uh, try to distinguish uh, the exposure of your constituency relative to other um, other uh, other sectors. Now, I do want to say, though, I think uh, here's here's what we feel very strongly you should not do. Yeah. Which is uh, sit on your hands, hope for somebody else to come up with a plan, wait and see. Um, I think that there is, uh, and there have been a lot of questions that have already come in around, is it appropriate to steward donors? And this is sort of Lynn's um, uh, area of expertise, but I don't think it's that much different for companies like ours, uh, Lynn's, or for people who work in the advancement sector. The number one thing we have to do is take care of our existing customers and partners uh, and, and folks that we've gotten over the years, which is why we're trying to come up with series like this that are hopefully genuinely helpful. We're trying to do it in a digital format, recognizing none of us are gonna be at case conferences anytime soon. Um, the number one thing we all need to do is take care of our existing donors. Uh, and I think that if, if uh, we were, for example, expecting uh, annual fund, uh, sorry, major gift officers to do, let's say 10 or 20 visits a month, I would hope that we could be five to 10 Xing that activity, recognizing that there are no travel, right? No delays in airports, very few internal meetings. And oh, by the way, our donors don't have internal meetings and aren't traveling around the country either. So I think part of the reason we're able to get 525 of you on a Tuesday afternoon is because we all have more free schedules than we've had in the past. And so I think what we have to do is ensure that we are filling up those schedules and if all else fails, turn to stewardship. Is that fair, Lynn? Yeah, I think um, stewardship and donor relations needs to be forefront. Um, to compare this to 2008, 2009, those shops that invested in donor relations professionals were up 19% in fundraising, and those that invested in frontline fundraisers were down 9% in the, in the downturn in the economy. So you can't just ask. You, you have to take care of people, and you have to nurture them 
and um, you have to nurture the relationship you're having with them. Check in on them, talk about their health and well-being, talk about their older parents or how it is to be homeschooling their children and trying to work and trying to stay married and learn how to cook all at the same time. Um, you know, we have to turn into what fundraising really is, which is a relationship business instead of a transaction business. And um, we also need to tell them what they're doing, what the money is able to do on our campus when we do raise it. So instant impact, delivering instant impact. If we're going to ask for money, we have to deliver instant impact. And this is where healthcare, food banks, other nonprofits really have an advantage over higher education um, in that they're delivering instant relief to people in crisis. Um, I think the other thing that we have but, to but do- Lynn, Can I just interrupt yeah. and disagree in that, isn't now actually a moment when you look at, at the student emergency funds, for example, that have popped up all over campus, when you look at the need to ensure that, that students uh, who are now in an online context have the basics uh, at their disposal, isn't this an opportunity for higher ed to be more of a conduit directly to the donors to make that instant impact, or, or are you skeptical? Um, I, think, <laughs> I think I've not met higher education that can move quickly and <laughs> deliver the instant impact that we need. I mean, I'm quite amazed that so many um, educational institutions were able to turn on virtual learning very quickly. Um, I don't know that the professors are ready. I can tell you that a lot of people in advancement weren't ready to work from home. Um, and so I have faith in our industry. I think it will take longer for us to deliver on what the actual needs are because I think our students need much more than a laptop and Wi-Fi. I think they need safe places to work I think they need access to research, and I think they're also going to miss their communities. So um, I'm, I'm mixed on I'm mixed on whether or not we can we can pull this off. Well, Mike, uh, I wonder if that's not a good uh, tee up for our next uh, poll question. I don't know the exact order you had them in, but obviously, uh, we have packed ten years worth of change in okay. higher ed into about ten days as it relates to online learning. We were curious to know if that same level of transition has happened as it relates to uh, moving from what was historically a mix of offline engagement, events, reunions, clubs, chapters, into now this 100% digital context. Do we have that question teed up, Mike? Yeah, let's do it. So uh, launching poll question now, you know, how many events has your team, how many virtual events has your team put together at this point in time? So, so uh, yeah. Alumni events is what we're talking about here, right, Mike? And, and basically, uh, you, when you look at the existing calendar, did you convert uh, events to digital? Uh, or have you introduced new digital events, right? We, when did we come up with the idea of this conversation, Mike? Uh, Friday, uh, shot Lynn an email. She got back right away. So she said, yeah, let's do it. So, and everyone on here got an email from us yesterday. So thank you for the immediate response, everybody. So I guess the question is, we're trying to respond rapidly uh, to introduce virtual events that were not at all on our radar 10 days ago. Uh, are you doing the same? And Mike, I'm curious what kind of response we're getting. Yeah, uh, so about half the folks on the call voted um, and the overwhelming majority, two of every three institutions, 160 people are saying no virtual events and um, 
seven folks responded said that they've got five to 10. So about a half dozen. If you are one of those that's shifted and, and has launched those virtual events, let us know who you are in the chat. Um, we'd love to follow up. I think one of the things we have to consider is whether or not our audiences are ready for virtual events, whether um, we're ready to host virtual events. Um, I can tell you people are, are totally looking for community and joining. Um, on the weekend, there's a DJ out of New York City, DJ Nice, and he put together an Instagram dance party Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night. And I was there with 180,000 people dancing and burning food because I can't cook. Um, and I think people are looking for that. Um, I, I don't know that they're ready for it to be their university yet, but we have to have a plan and we need to start taking action for what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that um, starting small and testing, you know, for example, uh, mapping the virtual event objective to our, our primary need to get closer to our existing donors and really think about um, a communication plan. Imagine a scenario where you have your president or your head of school or senior leadership team doing a, a, a conversation exactly like the one we're doing right now, except you're in the middle, uh, the president is on one side, the provost is on the other, for example, and maybe you start by testing that with your top 100 donors, uh, where you just say, hey, look, we'd like to give you a quick state of the union. Um, here's the link to, to join. Uh, certainly, uh, you can imagine that many of your donors, even older donors who maybe wouldn't have been comfortable with technology like this have been forced to adopt it as well. And so uh, imagine just hosting an, an event like this for an hour, a little bit of a fireside chat, a state of affairs, maybe an update on students, maybe an update on how funds that have been raised have been able to make an impact uh, to this new online learning context. So I would start small there, uh, very low risk, uh, and ensure that your president, your leadership team is comfortable with this kind of format, and then think about scaling it to your broader audience. Um, because I do think that uh, alumni, uh, we're all, you know, look, we're not alumni or constituents, or we're just people, right? People want to uh, be with other people, and obviously they care about um, their institution. So I think, uh, you know, we're seeing some really nice um, examples in the chat right now. Uh, of of um, uh, how this is um, starting to play out with with certain institutions, but what do you think about that, Lynn? When you yeah. think about the virtual event meets stewardship, um, am I on the right track? Yeah, I think there's two ways um, we need to think about this. Number one is virtual gathering um, where we're bringing people together. And I see a lot of people getting caught up in the, well, how will we administer this? And what platform will we use? Literally on Friday when we emailed each other, it was, let's get it up. Let's get it going. Um, you know, get on Zoom, you guys. They offer, you know, it's $14 a month and they let you pay by the month to have a thousand people join. Like, it's not like... You know, it's not like this is this is um, um, kind of bank breaking. We're going to do donor relations guru. We're going to do a an events a virtual events webinar, um, and we're going to have information about that. Um, we'll send you links to that. Mike can also put up that link. Uh, talking about the types of virtual events you can have, um, I think we need to have more fireside chats 
Um, I, I'm okay with a town hall, but it's uber formal in these times of are you wearing socks or not? I want my presidents and my campus leadership to take off the suits and I want to see them when they, you know, when the plane flies by or a kid screams in their office. So I want to see something a little more casual. Um, uh, happy hours, you know, dance parties, you know, bringing some community and joy. I think we also have experts on a lot of our organizations that can do virtual events for us that are educational. Uh, during this time, you could do something as simple as having a cooking class. Um, you know, it, it can be anything. I think the idea should be that it should be uh, it's no longer okay just to bring your alumni together because they're alumni. It has to be their alumni and so they're alumni and they're interested in art. They're alumni and they miss sports. I mean, I'm still heartbroken over March Madness, right? It's alumni and, not just you're an alum. So that's what I hope to be seeing from more and more people. One thing I'm thinking is we're just getting some incredible examples in the chat shared. I don't know that those are going to be visible to everybody, Mike, but... Yeah, I can run through as the highlights and we can I'll, post I'll them after the fact too. Them, but then I think maybe at the end we could write a a recap where we just call out some of the really creative examples. For example, Karen from Dartmouth mentioned that they did do a virtual town hall. I'd love to learn more about that. Um, our college did a small dance party for students, faculty, and staff. It was 15 minutes, one song selected, everybody played at the same time. That's from Tammy. Um, uh, the University of Memphis Alumni Association launched a virtual book club. Um, uh, let's just see. We've, uh, oh, I love this. Amy uh, Feriazzi from NC State. We've been hosting weekly Zoom meetings with our chancellor and top 75 donors and key board members at NC State. That is awesome. Um, and so we will try to just compile these really neat examples. Cornell did a virtual Cornell history happy hour. Alumni really enjoyed it. And I think the other thing to keep in mind here is that um, think about how many events you've had historically that are at a certain venue, they're at a restaurant or they're at a bar from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. And how many people just can't go there because of their commute or their kid's schedule or activities after school. Um, and by starting to introduce uh, uh, conversations like this, it really makes it um, so accessible. And so um, uh, I, I think in an interesting I don't want to talk about a silver lining in the midst of everything that, that we're dealing with, but if we're going to be forced into this new reality um, and we can reach more people more scalably than, than we might have in the past, um, that's really powerful. I just saw a neat example. We hosted mass for our entire alumni population on Sunday morning and had 15,000 viewers. I mean, that is absolutely incredible uh, and I'm sure you've hosted alumni masses in person over the years. And if you get, you know, 100 or 200 people, it would be considered a success. So uh, possibilities are endless. You got to think about what is relevant to your culture, your campus, ultimately um, what, uh, what your alumni want. Um, yeah, don't, I, fuss over, yeah. don't fuss over the platform or how you're going to do this. Like it doesn't have to be so polished. Like we've got people on Instagram reading bedtime stories to your kids. Like it doesn't, it doesn't have to be super formal or polished. So I just want everybody to let go, like let go. People are wearing pajamas to work. Calm down. We're eating Doritos for breakfast. Like calm down and embrace, find a platform that works and, and stick with it. You know, Facebook Live, Zoom, 
anything like that, um, University of North Texas has done ongoing education. If you have a college of education, help out the parents who are struggling to be teachers and parents, you know, providing them with the, you know, with the capacity to help um, while they're homeschooling, because a lot of states have moved to homeschooling for the rest of the semester. And so parents are like, ah, <laughs> what? Um, but I also think now is a time for us to adamantly show value to our alumni base. How are we bringing value? So if it's the University of Tennessee that put up really cute campus shots you can use as your Zoom background. I mean, that was brilliant. To LSU, right now, LSU Alumni Association, every day on Facebook, they post different um, businesses owned by LSU alumni that you can buy from. And I just think that that's brilliant. Look, Brent just changed his to Evertrue offices. He looks really professional now. Um, but both Tennessee and LSU are doing it right. Like, they don't have to be perfect. They're providing value, and they're providing, like, who doesn't want their campus background in the background rather than that moon space weird thing they've got going on? So those are the kinds of things we just need to adapt and get it done. Move, move. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is it. If you're, if you've got time in your day, and I'll share a real life example last night. But but there's two kinds of communication that I think we have to focus on right now. The first is one to many. How do we think about one to many communications, which is what we're doing right now, and that could be uh, the the president with the top hundred donors and key advisory board members. Uh, it could be mass to the whole community. That is the one to many communication. I think the other thing that we can work on is one-to-one -one communication. Being able to uh, uh, engage people uh, who are former donors, uh, and I do think we have to first and foremost start with people who have been donors in the past, um, and the way that we can do that would be both uh, synchronous or asynchronous. So synchronous being, uh, let's schedule a Zoom conversation. I just wanted to check in, see how you're doing, and share an update with what has been happening at the institution. Look, they could all uh, go to your COVID-19 website, and they could uh, read the email that you sent for detail, but people like talking to other people. And so uh, there was a question that came in, I'm a new gift officer, what do I do right now? I think the most important thing you can do is stay highly active and focus on one-to-one -one conversations with as many people in your portfolio as possible. And I think it just comes back to the golden rule. How would you want to be treated um, and, and reach out to people. I, the other thing we can talk about, and Lynn has a lot of experience with this, is the idea of asynchronous communication, right? Not necessarily scheduling a time and going back and forth with the calendar invitation and the Zoom link, but just proactively sending somebody a thoughtful video. Again, it's not about the platform. There are a lot of platforms, but last night um, I sent a note to, uh, to somebody who uh, is, is an advancement leader that I've gotten to know over the years. Uh, and I saw that he had been uh, making cookies with his daughter over the weekend as they were all adjusting to, you know, frankly, being on the road less. And I made him a 30-second video. I sent it to him, um, and he wrote me back late last night saying, hey, this really made me smile. Thank you for thinking of me. And so one-to-many, one-to-one, how do you think about that framework, Lynn? Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that um, – 
we have to embrace video and face-to-face -face virtual communications much more. Um, everybody and, and their mother, whoever had my email address, sent me a COVID email. I mean, I got one from Chick-fil-A, I got, which is important to me. I got one from, you know, other places that aren't important to me. What I'm missing from universities is this. I want to see your chancellor, your president. I want to see your fundraiser's face. I need to see their inflection. I need to see them. And that there's no text email that's going to do that for me. And so I can't highly encourage enough platforms, video. I don't care if you record a video and text it to a donor. There are platforms like Thank You. There are others. But video over text emails. Um, and so, you know, really look through your portfolio, your donors, and think about the people who need extra love. So plan giving donors right now are lonely and scared. Um, if they're in an assisted living facility or if, even if they're at home, they, they don't have access, right? Um, you, you're long loyal donors, maybe somebody who's given to you 30 years. Um, we've got a lot of people that could use a video just to, hey, been thinking of you, or it's a beautiful day on campus and it's quiet and we miss our students, but we miss our donors as well. Um, you know, well-being, just I can't imagine what this is like, you know, or for parents. I think, you know, we're doing a lot of um, communications probably to parents about alerts and, you know, tuition and dining plans. But when are we doing this? Hey, did you expect to have your 19-year-old back living with you? How's your milk supply? Like, do you have any groceries left? Are you okay? Because, you know, and same thing for our alumni, um, who are parents, you know, are, are you all right? Do you, you know, what kind of resources can we provide to you? But video, phone, text, more, less formal communications. I love the asynchronous idea. And even if you have to do the one to many, make sure you're being authentic and yeah. real. It's totally okay to acknowledge this is not an easy time. This is a time of uncertainty. It's okay to say, you, it's, you're allowed to be anxious. I'm anxious too. And we're, we're all not the same. Oh. So I think, I think we need to not act like it's under control. Everything's fine. It's, it's right. not. Yeah, and, and I do think just, you know, looking at the for-profit world for inspiration, if you didn't see the message that Arnie Sorensen, who's the CEO of Marriott, sent out to his um, uh, employees, I believe they had to furlough 10,000 of their uh, Marriott associates, and he did that via video, and, and it is the words, if he had just written the words uh, compared to the ability to communicate in a one-to-many sense via video, and I've seen so many presidential notes go out where they are all the same text. It's all the same sentiment, and, and you know, your presidents are unique. Obviously, they might not all be comfortable being on camera and so forth, but unfortunately, that's something that uh, they are going to need to embrace in this in this new reality. I, I also would say um, we had a really nice question from Colleen uh, Argentieri. With everyone doing similar things now, how can we make ours more special or stand out more than others? I mean, let me sh just share one example I posted about on LinkedIn. Feel free to connect with me there. Uh, Lynn, I know that you, you commented as well. Um, over the last week, we've seen more student emergency funds marketed than ever in the past. And they all look identical. And my yep. question is, where are those students? Why do they need these funds? Who are they? And I, and, and, and I know that we need to be sensitive with um, 
you know, some of our most vulnerable students might not necessarily want to share their story, but what if they do? And imagine a 30-second iPhone video from a student who doesn't have a laptop at home, who's trying to do online learning. That is the case that needs to be made if you're going to stand out at a time when everybody is being inundated with these sorts of messages. And if we're all using the same blanket student emergency fund text with the same banner image, it's really hard to stand out. And I, and I, I mean that with all due respect. I know we're all trying to figure this out, but how do we personalize the story um, and, and you have so many of those stories at your disposal. Lynn, how do you think about balancing sharing an authentic story with being respectful of, you know, student privacy, et cetera? Sure. I think um, there's a couple of ways to tell student stories without violating their privacy. I think one is talking to the families of the students. Um, I think the other is being sensitive that we still have some students on campus who want to be helpful. And um, imagine your whole community blowing away and you're one of the 19 people left on a 50,000 student campus. Um, I've been hearing stories of students who had been kind of asked to leave the dorms, but were still hanging around campus and professors and staff had found them and helped them rehouse because they didn't feel comfortable going home. Um, but I, those are things I've heard. I haven't seen them in any of the, um, any of the fund advertising. And, you know, I, I get from 50 to 100 universities emails. Um, and the other thing I haven't heard that I really want to hear from universities as, a, as an alumna and a donor is how are you taking care of your staff? I wanna know what you're doing for the people who can't work remotely, the non-white collar staff, the people that worked in the, in the uh, student dining hall or the housekeeper that cleans your office at night. Because if you're taking care of that person, I wanna know, because I wanna know that from companies. For example, Patagonia is paying their employees even though their stores are closed. So when they do open back up, I want to do business with Patagonia as opposed to, and I want to hear how a university is taking care of their staff that's on the margins that already struggle um, to make it and are very close to not making a living wage on campus. So I want to know that. So maybe we tell it from a staff story first or a staff member whose child goes to X university and what that doubly compounded means because they're on tuition remission. So they're not like other students. Yeah, yeah I think um, one other theme that maybe is worth touching on uh, per your point, Lynn, is we have staff members in every advancement shop who were planning reunion, who were planning clubs and chapters, who were planning the advisory board gathering upcoming in May. And I listened to a webinar in the software context where they talked about, hey, people that were, you know, think about our business, right? We have, we have teams who are focused on getting booths ready for case conferences. Well, guess what? We're not doing that right now. So how do you redeploy that team into doing um, activities that can help support our broader mission at this time? Uh, and I think that if all else fails, uh, steward uh, can be a really good mentality uh, uh, or mantra to embrace. And how do we think about taking somebody who was planning a large event um, and getting them busy and active on, uh, uh, on other activities? And, and so I'm curious, Lynn, if you've seen anything there, what your thoughts are. Yeah, so I've talked to some of my clients and teams and they're redeploying um, event professionals to reach out and become, because event professionals by their nature are good storytellers. 
So some of them are um, going and gathering stories. So for example, one of the big gaps we're facing in higher education is student workers. So um, the student worker and your job every day is to check in the people in the rec center, right? You're the person that greets everybody. You've got a great bubbly personality, but you're now without your work study job and your job because there is no more people checking into the rec center and there's no more campus. So let's go out and talk to that student and film some videos with them and talk to them about how they're adapting. You know, has the university helped them get a job at Trader Joe's? What are, or at an alumni company that's hiring? You know, we can redeploy those folks because one of the things about event professionals is they're kind of like Swiss army knives. Um, they're very helpful. Um, we, we can pull off just about anything. Um, and so how we redeploy that skill set um, can also, they're, they're good at sourcing things. Um, so if they've got a community in need, they're very good at hunting things down. Yesterday, I saw an events team at a, at a university, and I'm going to keep this one quiet, but I've seen a couple universities who went in physically to labs and emptied the labs out of gloves and protective equipment and helped them donate science laboratory um, protective equipment and masks to a local hospital. And that was the events team. They got together and did it um, with the science faculty. So um, those are things that we should also be showcasing that we've done for our community as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think one other um, topic that I do want to just touch on is back to the change acceleration. There is a lot of inertia in higher ed. And I would say what has been encouraging, Lynn, is that even over the last couple of days, I've had uh, people reach out to me saying, hey, Brent, um, you know, for example, a big part of our work is how do we track digital engagement, right? How do we track who's, who's engaging on Facebook? How do we track who's interested on you based on what they're doing on Twitter? And I think for certain leaders, that has sometimes been um, a nice to have or a bit of an afterthought, but there's still so much focus on the reunion, the campaign gala, the, the kickoff. And now in this digital only context, we have had a few people reach out and say, hey, we had been really struggling to make the case here. Our IT team was, you know, giving us a hard time. Our leadership just said, embrace digital. What tools do you need? And I don't want to make this be about the tools, but more about the opportunity to really make big ideas come to fruition at a time when your leadership team is looking for people to step up and propose solutions at a time when most people are going to be scared nervous and, and and I think it can be a tremendous opportunity for those of you who want to innovate and try to push the envelope. How do you do that without getting in trouble, Lynn? Well, I think uh, here's what I'm telling people. Number one, you're canceling all these events. That budget money isn't gone and they haven't cut your budget yet. Budget cuts are coming. So you have an opportunity to spend some money and do some testing with technology that you've always wanted. So if that's engagement technology, if that's video technology, one of the things one of my clients is doing is they are buying, uh, here you go, they are buying these for all their gift officers to hold their phones and they're buying microphones and some kits, little backpack kits like Kansas State has um, for, their, for their video kits and they're thinking differently and I think the way you do that without being scared is you say, now is the time. 
now is the time for us to catch up to the modern world um, in terms of tech and platforms. And I know that a lot of the tech companies are bending over backwards to meet us in the middle and say, you know what, I have this platform, try it for a while, let me know if it helps you. If it does, then we'll talk about money and financing and you know, same thing, you know, my business is being very flexible. If you need the advice, we're going to give you the advice. We'll worry about the other stuff, but I'm going to take care of the people who need the help. And there's so many of us wanting to help. So I think if you come at it as a staff member from a, this benefits the donor perspective, and I want to do things that benefit the donor. And there, there are things that we've not seized upon. And now's not the time to make decisions by committee. So it's going to require gumption, which is one of my favorite words. Um, and you're not going to get fired via a Zoom call one day because you decided to do a new idea to thank a donor. Um, so, you know, I think we have to be a little bit braver. And I think that there's two types of people, unfortunately, when a crisis or a, uh, or in a bad event or, you know, emergency happens, the fight, the fight or flight, you know, kind of mentality people, but really it's people shut down or they take action. We saw that in 9-11, we see that unfortunately when there's uh, active assailants um, and same thing, you want to be one of the helpers. You don't want to be per paralyzed by inaction. So I think anything you're moving forward to help your donors with, that's where you've got to hang your hat. I think that's a great segue to doing some of the Q&A, Mike, if you're okay with that. Um, you know, there's a question that, that just came in. I, I just started a job as a digital gift officer. How can I be really good at my job and showing metrics when times are so strange? Uh, my answer to that is, is basically building off of what Lynn just said. Um, if traditional gift officers have been measured on visits and proposals and solicitations and revenue, uh, what can you be measured on as a digital gift officer activity? Okay. And if it's historically a gift officer would maybe get uh, a, a couple of visits a week or, or some weeks even less, could you have five or 10 zoom calls with donors in a day and make 20 videos to people in your portfolio or in your prospect pool that you can say, Hey, look, I want to introduce myself. I'm Brent. I'm your new digital gift officer. The world is crazy. Uh, I just wanted to make a quick connection. And oh, by the way, here's what we are doing for our students. Uh, Nico from Ohio University shared that uh, a link uh, talking about the fact that they're keeping all of their student workers employed in a remote context. That is a monumental undertaking. Yes, that is being shared on the website, but how do we make sure that at the individual donor level, that broad mass marketing is being complemented with high activity outreach? And so if you're in a digital gift officer position, and you, you know, your calendar should be absolutely slammed either with one-on-one -on -one calls that you've scheduled or with one-to-one -one, uh, videos or other messages that you might be creating for your donors. Fair, Lynn? Uh, completely fair. And I think for people who are overwhelmed with the amount of Zoom meetings and, and internal meetings, I would be blocking two to three hours of every day if I were a digital gift officer for content creation and I'd be filming videos on my phone, on my laptop, whatever you know, resource I was provided, I'd block that time as sacred so then you're not interrupted by meetings, internal meetings, because that should be just like visits, you know, just like saying to them, and you should be creating content 
or sourcing content. So say you have a donor who's interested in, um, you know, art, maybe it's you put together three links to art museums that have virtual tours right now and you send that to them. You say, hey Brent, I know you're at home and you're tired of cooking and doing jigsaw puzzles and having your kids climb over you. I thought you might take a moment, even if it's before you take your shower or, you know, when you're, when you're trapped in your closet and just take a moment to walk through these virtual museum tours because I know how much you love art and I thought this might center you right now. I mean, that's, that's what you've got to create. Take that chunk of your day and create that kind of content. Love it. Hey, Mary Ellen just commented, it was re recommended to us that everyone take the commute time that's no longer and schedule that amount of time to reach out to constituents daily. I love that, Mary Ellen. That is assuming, of course, that that commute time is not now uh, homeschool time, which right. unfortunately it has become uh, at, at my house. Um, or self-care time for people who are stressed or need self-care. No doubt. Um, Another great question came in. I recently reached out to my top 10 prospects who I know on an in-person level and haven't heard back from any of them. I'm hoping to steward my donors, but I fear the lack of response can indicate they don't want any interaction. Does that make sense? What's your advice moving forward? I think my advice would be first and foremost, we should not assume one uh, note uh, is enough these days. I think you've got to envision what would a weekly cadence be to connect with those top 10 supporters. And even if they don't write you back, uh, you can start to get a sense of if they are uh, at least opening the emails, there's a variety of technologies that, that can help there. Um, but I think that even somebody not responding, uh, but receiving consistent outreach can be really powerful. I also think this is an example where uh, firing off an email uh, might not be the best way. It could be a text message uh, of, of you sending them a, a, a personal video, if, if that's more personalized. And Lynn, I just saw you had an amazing stewardship experience from Kimpton this week that came via direct mail. And so while we're on digital engagement, uh, the mail can be more powerful than ever, especially when everyone is literally stuck in their house. I did. So I posted, I had to, I, I love the Kimpton. I stay at Kimpton's all the time. Most of you who know me know that. Um, I had to cancel a vacation I was planning back to my favorite Kimpton in Cayman Islands. And um, I canceled all my Kimpton stays leading up to July. And I post on Twitter how sad that made me. And the Kimpton social media team said, don't be sad. We're going to be here for you when you get back to traveling. We still love you. Um, and to, yesterday I got a massive fret box with a Kimpton candle, all their bath scents, and a lovely robe um, saying that they hoped this made me feel like I was at the Kimpton at home and that they'd be waiting for me um, when I came back. And it was a handwritten note from their Twitter team. And they've done other lovely things for me. But as a person who travels and is an extrovert, this is especially a hard time for me. And just for someone to do that, um, I think uh, direct mail, um, something to get through my question to that person that said I reached out to 10 people, my 10 people and they didn't respond would be, how did you reach out? Was it a cut and paste email that I could tell it was a cut and paste email or was it a video? Was it, and was it about, you want to send me an update about the university or was it, hi, how are you? Is everything okay? And I also would say last week going into the beginning of this week, my calendar became frantic at a certain point um, because people are reaching out and that's a wonderful thing, but I didn't have time for, um, you know, 
extra emails or extra touches from people. So I'd say you need to reach out on LinkedIn through video, text, and a handwritten note, you know. Um, you know, you, you have to also understand, though, depending on certain parts of the country and certain people, they may not be checking their mail right now. So some people are deciding to physically distance themselves um, for uh, different reasons. We don't know how long the virus lives on surfaces and things like that. There's lots of rumors, but there's no accurate, just like we don't know if it dies in the heat yet. So um, yeah, so be careful there. But that's why I love Thangview. I love just filming a video on your phone. Hey, um, it's Brent. I just wanted to say hi or send me a photo, like do something different. You have to stand out because everybody else and their mother is emailing me. My email volume's gone up. And so stand out in the crowd. Yeah, I love it. Um, I, I wanna comment just, there's a really thoughtful question from Anne uh, Campaign Romero. I'm a fundraiser for a school of nursing. We've been talking for years about a critical nursing shortage. This crisis will surely highlight the need for graduating more nurses. I know that most of my alumni and some donors are on the front lines. Talk to me about the careful balance of checking in on them and their well-being, telling them what we're doing. Uh, Anna, again, I, you know, we're not we're not experts here, but I think um, it is safe to say that you just shared the sentiment you need to share with them. We're thinking of you. We know that this is an intense moment. We love you. And how do you express that? Can you get your president to send you a thirty second video on an iPhone? I don't know if anybody's familiar with the uh, the company Cameo out there, but it's basically yeah. a way you can get a celebrity to make a video for your friend on their birthday. It's gone totally viral. What is the institutional version of that? Except it might be the athletic director, or it might be that coach, or it might be that dean, or it might be the president. How do we start um, being able to uh, request those kinds of quick videos that can be so meaningful to your audience that cost nothing to produce? Um, and I feel like that is one of those, those opportunities that this crisis is going to present. Uh, how do we test small? I've seen some amazing examples um, from a, a gentleman named Keith Hannon. Uh, we featured him on our podcast. He's been on our blog. He's, he's with Cornell University Athletics. And he's been doing video uh, solicitations for some time. But a great example that he shared was that now when he's doing conversations with donors, he'll actually invite a head coach to join via Zoom that coach never could have gone on a field trip, you know, field visit to St. Louis, but it's easy for them to join. And so even though it's, it's remote fundraising or digital fundraising, and it might not be as good as buying somebody lunch, if you can have the head coach there present, it's way better from the donor's perspective. And so I think you're not going to shift your broader communication strategy overnight, but can you just test it on a small scale? Try it. Donor feedback and then start to showcase it to your department more broadly. I have to tell you, there's a lot of board coaches out there that can't recruit and they can't meet with their student right. athletes. Uh, my, my concierge, Shannon, is married to one and he's driving her crazy. Um, and he would do videos for people. Um, I think the same thing about a lot of our leadership that is having a downtime. Like, what's the director of housing doing? You know, like, can we get people involved that weren't involved before um, and do surprise videos with people, um, you know, things like that. I think um, the other thing I would recommend if you have a nursing school or a school of health professions or something or medical school is um, the other day, San Francisco, Friday night, the city of San Francisco, a bunch of people in San Francisco were posting 
that at 7 p.m. everybody would walk outside and give applause to all the healthcare workers that were helping. And I saw videos of some of my friends who did that. So I just love that. And so why don't you have your graduates or your alumni around the world thank, you know, thank a, I'm a Gamecock, so thank a Gamecock nurse, thank a Gamecock health provider on their social media and, and just say thank you so much. And I can, that's a great way I feel like I can help that doesn't involve money, that's also taking care of my community. Yeah, I'm just going to share a quick link that I saw um, on a related note uh, from Penn State University. I don't know if anybody from Penn State is on. Sorry, it's playing on YouTube now, but I'm going to drop it into the chat. Um, they crowdsourced alumni uh, offering really quick videos from their iPhones, mashed it up into a very simple, low-edited YouTube video that they sent to their class of 2020. Basically, hey, we know this isn't how you expected your senior year to go, but you're joining the best alumni community in the world. And it was super powerful. And, and again, that's the kind of stuff that uh, it, it costs nothing uh, and, and you can test it easily. Now, I will say we got anonymous attendee to, to message something that, that we need to talk about. Sometimes leadership is so worried about what messaging is going out. They're almost stifling creativity. They're almost paranoid. And probably what that means, anonymous attendee, is that they're nervous, they're not sure what to do, uh, they're worried, and, and so I would say um, you're probably not going to be able to plan the virtual town hall with the president to the top 100 donors in that context, but you personally can still fire off 20 videos that are thoughtful too. Uh, a, a subset of supporters that you've been engaged with. I saw a really neat example where a gift officer made 40 videos on Valentine's Day on YouTube, private YouTube videos, basically saying, hey, we love you. And with some different shot of campus, sent that to each of his prospects. You can start testing on a small scale, even if you've got uh, unsupportive leadership around some of the, the, these topics. Yeah, and I think you, you test with audiences that they're not particularly concerned about, mid-level donors, annual giving donors. You know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna you know, email Michael Bloomberg if you're at Johns Hopkins and send him a video today. Probably not good, right? Because he's their biggest donor. But think about it. I have yet to have a donor relations professional or fundraising professional get yelled at or fired because they sent a video thanking a donor and you know, or because they were trying to do something to care and nurture for a relationship. Where people go wrong is when they're silent and they ignore that there's a relationship there. So again, having that gumption to say, I value this relationship. And so I'm going to go out on a limb and film a video on my phone. Um, I just, that's important. Yeah, look, so I think yeah. we want to be sensitive of time here. Yeah. Um, what are the key takeaways? Here's what not to do. Sit around and, and, and be nervous and worried. We all are feeling that way, every single one of us. But in the meantime, we have a certain amount of time every day. And if all else fails, uh, bias towards action and try to, to knock out some kind of stewardship conversation as, 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 as quickly as you can. Test and learn. Uh, Mike, is there any final poll we want to do or, uh, or, or anything else that we need to... Uh, to conclude with. And by the way, I'm Brent Grin on LinkedIn. Some of you have already reached out on Twitter as well. Lynn's very active on both, both of those channels. Donor Guru on Twitter, and you can find me under my name on LinkedIn and the website Stoner Relations Guru. Um, we're yeah. here to help. 
Yeah, just a couple uh, things to plug. I mean, definitely check out evertrue.com, check out donorrelationsguru.com. Lynn, you've got a lot of great events coming up. Uh, we're going to continue with these live Q&As. We're doing one for leadership on Thursday with our friend Josh Newton, who's the head of the shop at Emory University. They are right next to the CDC, and so they are in the thick of it. Um, and yeah, stay tuned to the uh, evertrue.com slash remote. Um, we're going to post the recording. We're going to post the, uh, the Q&A and uh, give more resources there. It's not quite 2 o'clock yet. If we have time for a 30-second flash response. We got a couple questions about balancing stewardship with also simultaneously launching crisis funds. Two sentences. Can you give a solution for that? I will just quickly comment on balancing stewardship with making the ask. I think that, some, that in this kind of situation, honesty is the right way to default. And being able to say to a donor, hey, the market's down 35%. I'm going to guess, I know we were talking about a possible gift. I'm going to guess now is not the right time. And let them say, no, Brent, I realize that you might feel that way. We might need to adjust it, but I still want to have the conversation. Or Brent, thank you for acknowledging that. Now isn't the right time. Well, would it be okay if I came back to you in a month or two or three or four? And I think just being able to hit it head on and having, saying it's probably not the right time, letting the donor guide you the other direction. Uh, I would say uh, double your thanks for every ask. So for if you're going to do an ask, then you need to do two or three thank yous. And, and don't confuse thank you with impact. Thanking is one thing, that's gratitude. Impact is the other. They need both in order to feel that full picture so that you can come there. But I totally agree with Brent. Let the donor lead the way and acknowledge and be human. We are not perfect, you guys. Be human. Be vulnerable. Awesome.